The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today we're speaking about a very important topic, police suicide. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., the police suicide rate is three times that of the general public. Suicide claims the lives of more police officers than violence in the line of duty. Police suicide is an epidemic. How do we understand this reality? Is there a way to intervene? These questions are going to be answered and much more from our guest expert, Dr. John Violanti. He's a psychologist, a retired 23-year police veteran, and an academic researcher of police suicide. Drawing upon his important book, and it's one of his many books, Police Suicide, A Blue Epidemic, he's going to help us consider the multi-complex causes of police suicide and possible interventions. Dr. Violanti is presently a research professor at the University of Buffalo. He served with the New York State Police for 23 years. In addition to the book we'll be referring to at times, he's actually the author of many peer-reviewed articles and over 18 books on police stress, trauma, and suicide. Dr. John Violanti, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you, Dr. Phillips. Uh, it's great to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Okay. Um, now, Dr. Violanti, what, when we take, talk about the scope of this problem, has it really gotten worse and worse in a dramatic way, and is that across the entire country? How do, tell us a little bit about how this epidemic, as you call it, has been unfolding. Well, in our research, we looked at, uh, you know, various numbers of police suicide uh, over decades, uh, some of the epidemiological data we looked at. And from one decade to the other, we saw a, uh, an increase in police suicides. I think uh, today police officers find themselves in the middle of uh, a society in conflict, uh, political conflict, uh, sometimes racial conflict. Uh, it's a difficult time, and, and they are basically uh, put in the middle of, of all of this turmoil. Uh, that weighs heavily on, on the psyche of police officers, and sometimes uh, there are officers who uh, can no longer cope with that. It's so, it's so well said. When, when you think of the fact that we are also stressed by some of those factors, but our police officers are in the front line, in the communities, in the streets, having to face it and having to face any kind of backlash about it. You're exactly correct. They, uh, they are the ones that have to maintain the order in situations like that. Mm. 
Now, when you speak about police suicides, is there a gender difference? I know there are far more male offices, but do we see a significant number of female offices also dying by suicide? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the police work is primarily a male-dominated occupation. Uh, we di- we have seen an increase in female police suicides. Uh, I just saw some recent data from the uh, mortality uh, weekly report from the Centers for Disease Control. And the rate for females in what they term protective services, uh, that includes police, firefighters, EMTs, and so forth, the rate for females uh, over the past five years is significantly higher in those populations than they are in the general population. So we're seeing an increase in those areas of work. So we are seeing it. One of the compelling things about the book, and I'm sure it's true of, of all your other writing, is the is what you describe as the impact of the police role itself. This is not mm. a job. This is an identity. But it, mm. it it it's it's one that takes in more ways than than one. Tell us a little bit about the impact of the police role. Well, it's a, it's interesting that one. Uh, first of all, police officers come from the society, and they're put into this situation where they're trained and, and re- reprogrammed and reconditioned to a great degree to be police officers. And the training is difficult. You know, it's uh, it's military in nature, and the idea is to transform them from a citizen into this role of being a law enforcement officer. Well, the role itself is consuming. It's all-consuming, and and that is part of the problem because people who become officers uh, become totally engulfed by this identity of being a police officer, and some can't escape from that. They take it home. uh, it, it, uh, It dominates their lives. So that's a, that's a real problem because it's hard for them to break out of the role when they go home, uh, when, they, when they're off duty and so forth. This is one of the things I think that can uh, eventually uh, not allow you to, to cope with stress because you, you can't assume another role. Uh, you have difficulty moving from the role of being a police officer to being a father or being a husband or just being yourself. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I mentioned in in the break is that a few years ago, I was invited to be the monthly guest of a police wives papa group. And that's a police organization for taking uh, police assisting uh, policemen. And first of all, they told me, uh, Dr. Volante, that the the, um, group had been in, in going for about two years, but they learned very quickly they could never send out an invitation about the time of the group with any um, information that said it was from a pop, the Papa group organization because the men would throw it away. So mm-hmm. it had to become, it went in a plain envelope. And what these women shared was very, very consistent with what you're saying. These, they seemed like they really loved this, these men, but they said these men emotionally never come home, that they mm-hmm. have a certain game face on, which now when I thought about it, you need to have that face on. You're always in a state of sort of semi-hyper-arousal on the streets. It's very mm-hmm. hard to make the switch if you're a pharmacist and you're coming home, but if you're coming mm-hmm. home 
As a police officer, it's much different. And one of the things you write about in the book that maybe you can speak to here is they develop a certain type of thinking, a kind of constricted thinking, which we know is dangerous in terms of suicide. Maybe you can talk about that. Uh, sure. I think uh, what uh, psychologists would call cognitive restriction, uh, constriction, and, and that's uh, what that is essentially is people who do this tend to think in black and white situations. Now, police officers think that way. You know, it's either right or it's wrong, and there's no middle ground. So you get socialized into that uh, when, you, when you become an officer. Uh, the problem with that kind of thinking is that when you get in crisis uh, and you start having suicidal ideation, uh, you can't find, you can't problem solve. You can't think of any other way to get out of the, the psychological pain you're feeling. And the only way you can think about getting out of that is to die by suicide. So it's a matter of, of constricting your ability to think, to problem solve, to solve your, your crisis uh, in some way that's not going to be harmful to you. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of the moment of extreme psychic pain, it feels so intolerable and inex- inescapable um, that, that there's only one option. There's no consideration this may feel better. You know, in terms of mm-hmm. the kind of intervention for for cognitive behavioral type of intervention, but when we back it off a little bit, even before there's that moment of suicidal thinking, and that may be very dangerous, they bring home at times a kind of constricted thinking. Either the teenage is right or wrong. There's an understandable paranoia about who you going with and I don't like those kids they're so they've seen so much John that they're extremely protective but at times it's heavy-handed with the children as these women would describe mm-hmm. yes again that uh, as I mentioned before of it's an, an all-engulfing consuming sort of role being a police officer and they can't break out of that, that kind of restrictive thinking that they have, even bringing it home. And it, it bleeds over into their family. Um, you know, there, there's criticism, for example, of, of a spouse that maybe the spouse made a decision on some particular event during the day and um, the officer didn't think it was right. So, uh, you know, they, they'd start arguing about it or, or having... Uh, fights about it and so forth. The same with the children, you know. Uh, children of police officers, again, are, are brought up with uh, that the, the same sort of bleeding that, that comes from this role of, of being a cop. It's all-consuming, and it affects every part of your life. And, you know, the best way to handle that, and I, I think, you know, officers need to be told this uh, at the academy level, that you need to pull the plug, if you will, uh, when you're off the job, and you need to start mm-hmm. thinking in a more um, uh, robust fashion. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the one of the very valuable messages you give is that just that that we're not going to eliminate the danger and the shifts and the stress. The question is, how can they be taught early on more adaptive ways of dealing with the stress? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, in my opinion, I think everything needs to start. At the beginning, and when people come into the state police, into the police academy or state police or whatever, um, that's where 
training, uh, proactive training is necessary. They need to be made aware of how this work will affect them and their lives. You know, our, they need to be told that there are different ways of looking at the world other than looking at it from a police view. There are other ways to deal with problems other than looking at it from a police view. They need to be told this and how to cope with these situations. We neglect to do that, I think, in many respects. We, uh, sometimes we don't uh, inform young police officers that are going out in the field as to what they're going to see, what they're going to feel, and what's going to happen to their lives. You know, when you speak about that need to get them at the beginning, it reminds me, myself and a colleague, we once did a training about self-care and stress reduction for retired police officers who were working um, on a, a call line, a suicide hotline. And, John, in that experience, one of the things they each of them shared somewhere across the day, we had all different types of activities and exercises, almost everybody shared the critical incident that had the most indelible negative impact on them that they had a very hard time shaking. And I kept thinking, Uh oh, my God, all these years passed before these folks, and there were men and women, had a chance to share these critical incidents. If it were, and I know we're going to talk about um, resources and programs, if there was some sort of understanding that you can debrief and you can share this without be, being labeled someone with a problem, as a problem, it would be quite an important gift to their resilience. Well, absolutely. I mean, again, the academy is the play, one of the places to do that. And um, I want to make that point. I want to make a second point about retired officers. So, number one, in the academy level, there are proactive programs that one of my colleagues is working on, in fact, in Detroit, which uh, kind of proactively uh, uh, get officers ready for trauma. And what, mm. he does, what he does essentially is he, gets, he, he forms groups in the academy of maybe four or five officers, uh, presents a problem to them that's quite traumatic, uh, asks them, how they, number one, how they may solve that problem, number two, how they feel about that problem, number three, relaxation techniques, perhaps mindfulness, to get them to come down from that problem. So you can do, in a sense, this is being done in a safe place, a safe environment, and it's allowing them to feel what they want to feel, and it's going to sort of prepare them to get ready for what they're going to see when they step out of that academy door. As far as retired officers, what we found with one of our studies is they suffer from residual effects of trauma, Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes they, they, can't, they can't adjust to that. Uh, you know, you talked about adrenaline, and adrenaline rushes uh, always seem to be happening in, in police work. Well, when you retire, those are gone, and right. <laughs> your body's still looking for them, you know. And I, I think uh, retired officers have to deal with that, and sometimes they get the vestiges of those trauma they've experienced at, uh, on the job. Mm. It's like when you say with the military, you don't feel it till you're home, and then you know what you went through, and mm-hmm. and then it comes haunting back. What I love about the example with the training in the academy is, you're going to correct me on this on the other side of the break, when you're trying to debrief or give someone treatment, and you've just removed their gun, 
They're in such mm. a state of shame and resistance as opposed to training rather than treating before the fact. So they have heard those skills or practiced those skills without that secondary layer of something's wrong with me. Will I get my gum back? Will I be on this desk forever? So I love the preparation that happens not in the middle of their own critical incident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great plan. Uh, you know, and he's, uh, I think he's going to extend his study further in a longitudinal way uh, over time and see what happens. You know, the... Uh, the gun issue is very controversial. I mean, we were at uh, the NYPD had a, um, a suicide seminar where 300 people came from all over the world to talk about this, this topic. And one of the biggest issues was the taking away of the gun uh, from the officer. And it's so controversial. You know, we had people that got up and said, you're darn right I'm going to take the gun. You know, I don't want to be responsible for the death of, death of this police officer, uh, nor I don't want the liability of having to put, the, put up with this. The other side of the story were, were the psychologists in the group who said, well, wait a minute, you know, you're, number one, you're removing the identity of this police officer. You're taking the identity away. You're taking his gun and his shield away from him. You're putting him in a back room into what they call down there the rubber gun squad. Uh, there's shame associated with that. Everybody knows about it. Um, and the officer really feels pretty bad. So in, in essence, you're adding to the psychological pain by doing this. So it's a catch-22, and I think you mentioned that in the beginning. It is a catch-22 as to what to do. Some of the recent well, research goes... Oh, hmm. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. So recent research says that one possible way to deal with this is in terms of psychoeducation uh, involving the safety of firearms, uh, to, to teach police officers how to safely store arms. Uh, one suggestion was put the gun, most, most police suicides, by the way, occur away from work at home. Mm-hmm. So the idea was put the gun in the safe and maybe with a timed lock. Or put the gun in the or in the care of a, of a loved one, so you're separating the firearm from the individual. Now we know in periods of crisis, they may last five, ten minutes when someone's uh, saying, "Should I or should I not do this?" Well, if they can't get to the weapon, and generally people will not use another sort of device to to die by suicide, they'll use that one. If they can't get to that, you know, the crisis may subside to a point where the individual may be safe again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are techniques that are talking about in the research now. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a brief break and then come back and talk about that and much more. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. John Violanti. He's a psychologist, retired, 23-year police veteran. He does academic research. He has a position at... Um, Buffalo in Buffalo, I think Buffalo University, um, and he's drawing upon his many, many books on police suicide. The one that I've mentioned is Police Suicide, A Blue Epidemic. I also want to let our listeners know that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, or 8255. 
And, of course, the other possibility is that if help was needed, you can also crisis now a text line. If you were an officer, it would be you would be texting BLUE, B-L-U-E, to, to, four, one, to 741741. If you're a civilian, it would be the word TALK, 741741. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. There are many innocent people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. John Violanti, and we're talking about police suicide. John, let's go back to the issue of firearms because it's so dramatic to think of 60% of the suicides are done with firearms for, for the police, and it's even, it's much less for the military. And one of the differences is military don't go home with weapons necessarily they unless they're military police i mean they they're if they're in the war zone that's something different but the police go home with fire with their firearms and my question i had asked you at the break is are they required to bring them with them anywhere they go when they're off duty yeah i think uh you know in, in regards to the military uh, if 
When I was in the military, uh, we had to check our weapons in before we left the base. And, um, you know, that was a, a, um, another suggestion that, that came out for the police, but uh, it, would, it would be difficult. I think uh, it depends on departmental policy. There are some departments out there that say uh, you're, you're, you're a police officer 24 hours a day and you're going to have to carry your firearm 24 hours a day in case something happens while you're off duty. Other departments don't have that policy. Other departments say it's up to you, you know, at your, at your discretion. So it's all a matter of policy. But you would think, one of the things you wrote in this book is that, you correct me, it says um, 95% of police who take their lives do it off-duty, John. And so mm-hmm. that means they are using their firearm off-duty. Mm-hmm. Another, yes. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that's that's correct. You know, and I, and I think uh, I think as we we've discussed uh, that there needs to be perhaps a separation of firearms off duty somehow. You know, where officers do not have access to those in times of, of psychological crisis, and uh, it, it's so difficult to do this. This situation. Um, Especially in the NYPD, you know, with with the shame of being in a rubber gun squad, if you will, of being <laughs> stowed away in a back corner somewhere, um, it's so humiliating for officers to to be put in these situations. Hmm. So we're, we keep looking, you know, and I think research is moving forward on this, but we keep looking for solutions to this that will be amiable to both sides, you know, to the psychology of of letting the officer keep their identities and, and the, the, um, the safety factor of, um, that uh, organizations want, that officers not have a firearm. See, you, you had mentioned, I think, on the break or maybe one of our earlier segments that if they immediately put them in locked places, um, firearm, um, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of... Um, Locked safekeeping for guns. Um, right. That and it, well, that was what was done across the board. Then that could be a very important option. One of the things that that come that you also said in the book is that only ten percent of firearms are purchased for suicide. So it's the existing mm-hmm. possession of one that makes it so dangerous. When we did the show on suicide and firearms. Um, what Michael Anastasis was saying is, he said, I'm not against firearms, but I'm against the lack of safety. And I would think that much as you would take your car, the car keys from a friend who you know yeah. is um, intoxicated, if you see your friend, is, as you've mentioned, cops know each other, friends know each uh-huh. other, you might want to be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, he does have a gun. So that in some way you're able to play a role. Now, maybe that's too late already, but it it seems the firearm piece is a difficult one. I I mentioned at the break, and I'll share it, it, one of the things in Michael's book is that there was a number, the the, the rate of suicide was pretty high in Israeli um, trainees. And when they imposed the rule that no firearms could be brought home on the weekend, the suicide rate dropped 50%. So that availability uh-huh. in the mom- moment of despair is unbelievably dangerous. 
Yes, it is. Well, you know, and again, what what the research is now saying is that you need to separate the the means of suicide from the individual in periods of crisis. So, if I am an individual who has suicidal ideation, and I'm in this crisis period, and, and generally they last a while, you know, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. At that time of crisis, I should not have the availability of that weapon. Now. Most people, and police officers too, will not go out and look for another means of suicide. You know, they'll, if they want to do it, they're going to use the, the one that's available there. So if it's not available there, uh, you've in- decreased the risk of the suicide. First of all, and, and again, what the psychologists are saying in this stuff, research is that you need to educate the officer, and they call it psychoeducation, about safely storing a firearm, putting a lock on it, putting it in a safe, perhaps a time safe where you can't open it, or giving it to a loved one to, to, to not to keep it away from you. Uh, some way to keep that firearm away from you while you're not on duty. Um, you know, these are solutions that people are looking at. And again, it falls back to the, the catch-22, you know, do you or don't you? And administrators have a very difficult decision to make in that respect. Mm. When you think about the idea that the constricted thinking puts you in a moment where it feels it's intolerable, interminable, and inescapable, but we know people, if they haven't taken their lives or they they use drugs and they actually didn't die, very rarely do they do they try again to take their life. So that mm-hmm. that moment, nothing makes sense except to end it. And so right. even training people in terms of the constricted thinking seems to be a very important piece. Well, I think so. And I think if you, you know, if you, and again, I'm sure you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. If you, if you get people to be better problem solvers, um, they can look for another way out. And that way mm-hmm. can be a positive way instead of uh, a maladaptive sort of coping strategy. Uh, so, yeah, I think in the academy level, again, at the beginning, uh, after two or three years, I think police officers are so darn socialized into that role that it's difficult to reach them. Uh-huh. And we have to get them at the beginning. <laughs> Uh Uh-huh. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. A young lady told me just yesterday, uh, she asked me what the show was about, and I said it was on police suicide, and she said, funny you said that. Um, She was a, she's working in a medical facility, and she said, I went to some, to school with someone in grade school, and he was really pretty tough guy, and he became a police officer, and just a few weeks ago, I heard through the grapevine that, um, he got very, very depressed, and his mother, who was raised by his mom, became very worried about him, and no one could find him, and they did find him in a church, and um, the, the police were able to intervene, but he was clearly suicidal. Now, the other side of what she knew was that he was now on a desk job, and that's the rubber gun club, as you say. So I started to worry. I thought, I'm just hoping that as you said, the shame doesn't offset the kind of intervention that for depression or PTSD or whatever that young man needed. 
But that's where, I mean, we just got have to keep trying. And people like you who are doing the research and intervening, do they actually reach out for your department and your research, John, to sort of enhance their protocols? Uh, yes, they do. I, you know, I, I get a, uh, I get many calls to to go out and do presentations, and and, and I lay it out. I put it out there. Here, here's what we got. You know, here are the problems. Here's what we have to do. And I, we just did one down in, in West Palm Beach. Uh, we had 300 officers attend down there. Okay. Oh, and we bring, you know, I talk about it. We bring in survivors to talk about it. Uh, we bring in uh, people who have been through experiences with, you know, who are thinking about suicide but made it through. Uh, all of these have an impact on officers, and I, I think it, it lets them know that, hey, it's possible to be okay. It's possible to make it through this. We need to, I, I think we need to refocus on a positive, more a positive approach on this, that there are ways to beat this. There are ways to deal with this, and we need to let them know what those are. Well, if it's positioned the way you're saying it, like it's resiliency building and the ability to stay on the job because you sure. have certain skills for protecting yourself and your partner or other people um, that you know, maybe that mm-hmm. is a different kind of mindset. I think so. I think, you know, you speak of resiliency and I think uh, a lot of times we, we kind of expand that a bit. Resiliency is really, um, it's not only the individual that needs to be resilient, it's the organization. Mm. Because without the backing of the organization, without the officer knowing that the department is on their side, you know, uh, it's going to be more difficult to survive policing. So administrators, supervisors, all need to be trained in this. They need to understand the elements of suicide. They need to know when to intervene and what to do and have those places to go for these people. One of the biggest complaints that I've heard is I don't know where to go. And no one told me where to go. Wow. So at your big meeting, let's say, in West Palm, were there administrators and department heads there? Yeah. yeah, In fact, we had had some commissioners from from different states actually attending. Oh, that's great. We had surgeons, we had uh, peer support people, we had police officers. Oh, it sounds terrific. Um, We're going to have to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We've been fortunate to have with us Dr. John Biolanti, psychologist, retired 23-year police veteran. He's written over 18 books on police suicide. Stay with us. We'll be right back. But before I step away, I want to say the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 273-TALK. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in for In the Black. Host Bob Dickerson and his guests take a look at Black America and its socioeconomic place. In the Black will discuss the positive issues affecting Black Americans, including education improvements, business growth, closing the racial wealth gap, activism, and more. In order for America to reach its full potential, Black America must do the same. Tune into In the Black 
Live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation, Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. John Violante. He's an expert on police suicide. He's, he's written 18 books. He's a 23-year police veteran and an academic researcher of police suicide. And we were just talking about the difficulty of the stigma of mental health. We're, we're talking about people who are in harm's way physically and psychologically as part of what they choose to do in protecting us. But the inability to find a way to own depression or anxiety or marital problems, that's a big problem. Has any headway been made on that? Or let's talk a little bit about that, John. Okay. Well, I think uh, we've, we've stepped forward. Let me put it that way. Uh, you know, I recall being a police officer back in, uh, in, in the 70s, uh, the 60s and 70s, actually, and... Uh, you know, during that time, uh, nobody even mentioned the word stress or mentioned the word suicide, uh, and that that lingered a long time uh, until recently. And I think in this last decade, uh, there's a better understanding of mental health uh, in law enforcement, and I attribute a lot of that to the younger leadership coming up today. I think the younger leaders of today in policing have a better uh, grasp on on mental health than we did, you know, back in, in the days of the old days. So this is, I think this is a, a, a blessing and I hope to see it continue. One of the things that we use to try to get around the stigma and the resistance to any kind of help after 9-11 with so many uniformed service groups was the idea of training instead of treating. 
the you know mm-hmm. the feeling of uniform services is they're the people who they're the people who do the helping. They don't need the help. So mm-hmm. we we had some in the fire department. We had some pro, some uh, case finding. If you're trained and you know you know your buddy better than anybody else, maybe the intervention's going to happen. Fireman to fireman, cop to cop. EMT to EMT, because if you train someone again when they're not being implicated for doing something or seeming depressed or somewhat out of control, the possibility of them grasping it is better. And even in high school students, John, when we do the buddy care program, I'll check you out and say my friend John is very off and he's worrying me and I might drag you to the guidance counselor before I'm going to just show up myself. Now, I might need help, but I feel much better dragging you than identifying myself as a depressed person. (laughs) But so I'm wondering when I was thinking about it, and I think that's what you're saying, they're moving toward in the academy, more of the training, not treating. After a critical incident, you, you speak about the fact in the book that there's an intergenerational legacy of suicide with Young men whose dads were cops and committed suicide. I mean, there's also a legacy of loving and wanting to be a cop. So many families Uh have so many cops. But what about what's passed on there and what is it that we can intervene with? Was it a very high number? Go ahead. I I think what what happens here is uh, maybe it's an intergenerational um, trauma situation. You know, the, the, the police officer might come home and say, oh my gosh, you know what I saw today? I saw a dead body or I saw a, an abused kid or I saw some really horrible thing. And they talk about it with their uncle or their brother or something, even their spouse sometimes. And the children are exposed to that. And the family is exposed to that. And some of the research done with, uh, with the concentration camps, uh, uh, survivors uh, about intergenerational trauma shows that it can carry on from generation to generation. Sometimes that can happen. You know, and I've, I have seen cases, and I've seen cases on my own job where the uh, father of a, a trooper died by suicide. And uh, you wonder how, how, how much the effect is of being a police officer on the family in terms of what's generated, maybe the stress uh, brought about by uh, what that officer sees, uh, maybe by the stress of the job, of the, of all the things that go with it, the shift work, the missing of the holidays, everything mm-hmm. that kind of wraps up into a, a real effect on the family. Mm. Mm. And it would fit so well when we think that anxiety and hyperarousal and dysregulation are somewhat contagious, that mm-hmm. if whoever, whoever the, but whichever parent happens to be the police officer or is working in this type of field, their hyperarousal has to have an, an impact on the children, as little as the children may be. Mm-hmm. So, That's true. you know, the, the intervention makes such a difference. I want to mention the project that you talk about. Now, maybe it's been updated or changed. The New York City Police Suicide Project. Is that still in effect or has that been, has that evolved into another type of project at this point? Uh, I'm not quite sure what, what's being done in a project. I had, uh, had not been briefed on it yet, but uh, my understanding was that they were going to um, 
It's a matter of education and a matter of, uh, of putting uh, counselors in the field to, to deal with officers in trouble. Is that Am I correct on that? Or, mm. Yes, it's, it's both prevention and intervention, which is what caught my eye about it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, based on Ivanoff's work, as you described it in the book, one of the things that actually I think is worth underscoring, John, is that when they asked officers to rank the factors in police suicide, the first two are depression, and the second one is relationship conflicts and losses. Mm-hmm. It's The third is access to firearms. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's an interesting thing that, you know, when there's a divorce or there's a real conflict in the marriage situation, that's that's a dangerous thing. Yes, it is. I think uh, quite a while ago, I think... Uh, Dr. Ivanoff did, did some research on that, and she did find that relationship problems were a very big factor in police suicides, and uh, that, you know, it's difficult enough to be an officer and come home to additional conflict, and sometimes that conflict is caused by both parties, sometimes it's only caused by the officer, but still, uh, the only safe place to go when you're through with work, is home. And when that's not safe anymore, where do you go? You have nowhere to go. And mm-hmm. I think that, that really hurts hurts the psyche of, of officers that have these kinds of trouble. Mm-hmm. One of the things you say is that one of the problematic ways some of the officers deal with stress is escaping, as well as alcohol or drug use. Do you think that's a, a important factor in all this? I think so. I think they're looking for a place to escape uh, if there's nowhere else to go. And uh, alcohol is a, an easy, accessible way to escape from everything. Uh, you know, the, the research shows that police officers uh, do drink, and, and they drink probably more than the general population does. Um, it's not to say that they have alcohol problems. It's, say, it's just saying they, they use that to cope with stress. Um, but it doesn't always work. Um, other ways are the use of drugs, and you know I think some officers have gotten into trouble over that. Uh, they, it, it's hard to again, it's hard to escape from this role. That's almost a, to some degree a prison uh, of your life that you're in, and it's hard to break out of that shell and find another way out to do something to relieve yourself of, of what you're feeling uh, during your exposures. One thing that you talk about, which made me think of even people who are in other positions, is the healthy opportunity to have multiple roles in your life. So if mm-hmm. I'm a cop, but I'm also one of the main CYO coaches for my kids' basketball team, or if I'm also... Mm-hmm someone who just loves running marathons or if I'm someone who travels every time I can with my spouse, the whole idea of holding on to more than one roles, then whatever happens in one role, you know, it may not go well with the spouse, but you're still doing great with the kids or um, you may come home, I don't have to tell you, you know, we, we get upset if we see an accident on the side of the road. And mm-hmm. have a hard time shaking it. These these people are seeing this twenty four seven throughout their shifts. Mm-hmm. 
So, so if they don't have another place to escape to that's a protective, restorative place, it's got to be very difficult for them. It is, and I, I think you make a good suggestion, uh, Suzanne, that you know, doing things with your family uh, is great. You know, I do that. I still do that. And, uh, we run together. We run, well, I haven't done a marathon myself, but my, my daughter has, and I've, I've run a half marathon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we do this. So we go to Disney uh, every year and run the marathon down there. We, we visit places in Disney. Uh, uh, we go out together for dinner and so forth and birthdays and celebrations. And, and it, it just makes the family a unit that one can go into, if you, like you're saying, going into to escape from that horrible stuff you see at work. And uh, um, I, I think it's a great idea. Getting involved with sports, with young kids, uh, helping young kids through troubled kids, for example. Uh, you know, if you perhaps uh, volunteer for uh, the YMCA or the YWCA and uh, go in and, and teach kids things, or uh, it's gratifying. And mm-hmm. it, it helps you feel like a better person. I think what you're saying it makes so much sense. It, it taps off and reduces that moral injury that our, some of our military come home with and suffer so much from. That is, it's very hard to do this kind of work. And sometimes you walk away thinking, who am I to have done that? Should, but I had to do that. There's, there's so many decisions to make in protection and uh, military combat that to be able to have another place to go to just calm down and know that it's okay, that you're also a father or a football player or a um, golfer or a runner, We've got, we've got to offset it in some way. It does. It, number one, it takes your mind off of your job, you know, and helps you break out the shell. And it puts you in a role, I think, which, which you said is very important. It gives you another role to go into, and you're not stuck into that police role when you come home. Uh, when one you of the things were, I learned... You, yeah, I'm go sorry. Ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to ask you I'll when you worked. Did you were you with a partner over many years, John? Were you with the I, same? I used partner? to have partners on on a midnight shift. Yes. Uh-huh. So, did you guys help each other, or did did you find you two debriefed whoever that person was in a way that helped you go home with a little less weight on you? Well, you know what it is. I think being in a patrol car, uh, just the two of you. It gives you a chance to be real. It gives you a chance to discuss what you want to discuss. You know, whether it's a problem at home, whether it's something that's really bothering you, it's almost like counseling in a patrol car to a great degree to have a partner, uh, to have someone to bounce off something. And I think that helped tremendously. I know mm-hmm. it, it did help me a lot. I think it helped my partner to talk about his or her difficulties. And um, uh, it's just one good way of doing it. Sometimes the driver... Uh, who's in control of the vehicle, talks more than the passenger, but it, it seems to work both ways. <laughs> okay, that, that's great. So let, let me ask you this. Um, I, 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 I know the person who runs the Cop to Cop program, Cherie Castellano. Do you think that mm-hmm. cops do better just as you were in the patrol car talking to each other, and is that another thing that we should expand, training cops to work with cops so that it, it really takes the stigma down a bit? Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. Uh-huh. I, think it, I think it works well. 
And, you know, it's personal, it's private, and mm. uh, it's with a friend. It's another, another police officer. Mm. Now, let me ask you, as we're almost out of time, so if you were to give our listeners, our listeners are civilians, but they may also be people who are on the force or people who are in other types of uniform services, what take-home message would you want our, our listeners to have? Well, I think that uh, we all have a duty of care. And what I mean by that, I think that we should care about each other. And I think we can do that on an individual level. We shouldn't have to depend on the organization or we shouldn't have to depend on others to uh, bounce off of, if you will. Uh, If you see a, a fellow officer who's in trouble, and you know the officer's in trouble, you need to approach that officer. And, you know, police officers have instinct, and they know from their experiences who's in trouble and who's not. And it's a buddy-buddy system. And that applies to not only police officers, but it applies to everybody. Be a friend. You know, the, the person most likely to prevent your suicide is a close friend, a family member, or someone that, that you know very well. So Mm. it's a one-to-one thing, and I think that's the best way to go. Oh, it's a great take-home message. Now, John, how could people find your books? Well, unfortunately, the book is uh, is not no longer in print, but we have uh, we have a new book out called "The uh, um, Dying for the Job: Police Health and Exposure." And this is a sort of a collection of all of our 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 research, including suicide. Great, great. Dying dying for the job. And that's on Amazon, I assume. It is, yes. Okay, very, very good. And I want our listeners to remember the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. The crisis text line for police is blue in capitals to 741741 and it's talk in capitals for civilians 741741 John I want to thank you for coming on and for your years of service as well as the extraordinary work you've done in researching police suicide thank you so much for being our guest and for the work that you do Oh, thank you very much Suzanne appreciate being here Thanks. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. By 6 p.m. tonight, Eastern Time, this will be a podcast on your iPhone, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, iHeartRadio, and of course on Voice America Psych Up Live. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. But mostly until next week, take care. Be thanking the police officers that you see who put themselves out there for all of us. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.